Hello and welcome to another episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. And as I'm recording this episode, it's springtime in Michigan, which means we've got tons of pollen dust all over everything, as you can tell by my voice. But springtime means something else for parents of special needs children, and that's IEP time. Getting appointments for meeting with your children's school officials to plan for their next grade in school and revisiting and revising the individualized education plan. Do you want to continue getting the services your child has been receiving? What services are working? Which ones aren't working? Do you want to add services? Is the child going to go to another school next year, such as transitioning from elementary school to middle school or middle school to high school? It's a huge process, and everything that you and the school plan on doing for your child in the next school year must be addressed at this meeting. IEP meetings can be very detailed and very long, often taking at least a couple hours out of the day. Sometimes IEPs can be wonderful, with the school district representatives really interested and exciting and helping as much as possible in every way they can. Unfortunately, some IEP meetings can be bad, with the schools seemingly refusing to cooperate or even consider anything except the absolute least amount necessary under the law. Most IEP meetings fall somewhere between those two extremes, and the challenge is negotiating compromises on what the parents want and what the school district can provide. The other problem is that IEP meetings can be very stressful for parents. The district may have over a dozen people in the meeting who work with your child, whereas for many families, it's just one or two parents all by themselves. It's very easy as a parent to think that you're being overwhelmed or ganged up on or even intimidated into submitting to demands of the school that may not be what you want. Now, that may not actually be the case, but when you're all by yourself, it's hard not to think that way. Well, this is where having an advocate or a lawyer who specializes in special education law involved in your IEP meeting can really make a difference. Well, our guest for this episode is attorney Randy Rothberg, whose law firm Tivian Rothberg, based in New York City, specializes in legal representation for special needs children and adults. They counsel and represent parents at IEP meetings, negotiations with schools, and also work on mediation and impartial due process hearings, as well as appeals. Randy has many years of experience in legal issues and special education, and she joins us today to talk about IEPs and how parents can navigate through the entire special education process. Thanks for joining us on Special Parents Confidential, Randy. No, thank you for having me. It's, I'm really excited. I think it's, it'll be great. Great. Well, I think we should probably start by asking, how did you and your partner, Christina, become interested in specializing in legal representation and advocacy for children with special needs? Well, I think we both always had in the back of our minds that we wanted to use our careers in, in, and I'll put this in quotes, in a helping people sort of manner. Um, Christina didn't go straight to law school after she graduated college. In fact, she um, spent some time in the Peace Corps in Guatemala. She also ran group homes for adults with autism and other disabilities, and that was through the Central Connecticut ARC. after a few years of working and participating in Peace Corps, then she attended law school, and in fact, she chose CUNY in Queens, which is known for its emphasis on public interest. Um, and then she came into straight from law school, working on behalf of, of families of children with special needs. Um, mm-hmm. I went straight to law school after college, and um, during law school... After my first summer, I worked at the Innocence Project, which is a legal clinic run through the law school that I attended, which was Cardozo at Yeshiva. And um, I'm sure you're aware, but in case you're not, the Innocence Project is is essentially a legal clinic um, spearheaded and started Mm. by Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld to um, look at cases where um, prisoners 
maintain their innocence and, um, you know, they tried to get court transcripts and DNA evidence and they were really sort of pioneers in testing DNA evidence. And long story short, one of my clients actually was exonerated after being in prison for way too many years of his young life. And, you know, at that point when that happened, I I kind of gained a real sense of being able to use law school and, and illegal education to affect real change in people's lives. And, you know, I also was young and very inspired, um, and that inspiration carried far. So during law school and um, through the summers and through endeavors while I was in school, I participated in a number of civil rights and civil liberties and other public interest endeavors and internships. Um, after law school, I went to work at a general practice firm, um, which I always advise law students to do if they're you know, not necessarily able to get a job in their first choice field. So you can learn the courts, you can learn how to write, et cetera. Um, after about two years in, I was sort of itching to get back into something that was more, quote-unquote, helping people. Um, not that I didn't have that opportunity at my job, but I wanted to focus on that um, as my, my whole job. Um, and a friend of mine saw an ad in the New York Times for a position at a firm um, that represents families of children with disabilities, and I knew nothing about special education law. My mom was a teacher. I actually had written on the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act FERPA for my um, journal in law school, but I, you know, I had very little familiarity beyond that with special education law, and I applied, um, got the job, and it was um, at another special education law firm based in Manhattan. That's where I met Christina, um, and I, you know, immediately fell in love with this area of law, and, you know, Christina already had been smitten. And um, then in 2008, we together started um, this firm. And, um, we, you know, I think we really both continue to enjoy this area of work because it, it not only allows us to learn about the latest educational and behavioral models and, you know, have access to some of the world's top experts in the field, but our, we, we both, and this may sound a little bit hokey, but our job is really to tell children stories and explain why they need their special programs and services. And it, it's, it, to be honest, it's a unique privilege to be able to do that and to represent families in this manner. That's wonderful. You know, it's, uh, it's often that I hear from uh, people uh, who work in the field of uh, special education and disability, and they'll say that they have a you know personal connection sometimes. They have a relative or a sibling or a parent or something like that who actually has a particular thing. But it's also nice to know that there are people out there who just do it because they feel compelled to do it without any personal connection at all. I, th- I have... Um... I have some friends who have siblings or other people in their families um, who are affected um, by um, autism or other other issues. Um, and Christina actually right now has a stepson um, oh. who's diagnosed with autism. He's oh. doing amazing. Okay. Um, but I think we both came to this sort of separately um, from that aspect. And just, mm-hmm. you know, people came into our lives through this and and otherwise and um now we we really do feel part of a community which is mm-hmm. you know nice as well Right. And, you know, just about everyone, whether they want to know, whether they realize it or not, just about everyone does actually have a connection with someone who either has or is related to someone who has a challenge or a disability or a special need of some sort. A hundred percent. 
Yeah, that's great. Now, you work with families in negotiations with schools and school districts for creating and maintaining IEPs and also getting the supports that children need in school. Can you give us a quick overview of what happens when you work with those families? Sure, absolutely. So families come to us at all stages of the game. Um, But for many families, we've been involved for years and years, um, and we're part of each other's lives. Students are entitled under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Improvement Act, or I'll just call it IDEA from now on. Um, They're entitled to special education services from three years old to up to 21 years old. Um, Some students also receive, well, they're not students yet. As infants, they may receive early intervention um, services until from zero to three as well. So that's you know, a a nice span of years. Um, And because of this, in some instances, the relationships with our clients have become quite close. We've been invited to bar mitzvahs, weddings, christenings. We've attended graduations, unfortunately, funerals as well. Um, So it's nice to be involved with and see families outside of the process and and outside of dealing with their school district. Um, Most of the time, families will come to us initially um, before their child's IEP meeting. And when that's the case, um, an IEP meeting is a chance for the school district and the parents on an, an at least annual basis to meet to develop a, basically a roadmap for the student's upcoming year of programming. Um, and that's a whole process that involves, you know, looking at the student's strengths and weaknesses, his or her evaluation um, reports, and then developing goals and developing a program, including services and recommendations. And um, when families come to us before the meeting, we'll help prepare them. We'll often speak with the child's teachers and the evaluators, and we'll review their documents. Um, Sometimes we'll go to the IEP meeting, and and sometimes I see meeting, and it becomes meetings. Um, And sometimes the parents in the district can come to a meeting of the minds, and we can resolve the issues in a manner that's satisfactory to everyone so that the student and the family and the district are largely set for the start of the school year. Um, Other times, though, things just can't get resolved, and we have to file for an administrative due process hearing. And the law um, guiding special education, the IDEA, as I said before, includes within it a a written uh, mandate for a resolution process. And sometimes then settlement talks are triggered by our filing for this due process hearing. In other instances, even after we pass through the resolution period and the resolution process, we may have to participate in full-blown hearings, which um, these hearings can span non-consecutive days over several months, if not longer, sometimes a year or longer. Um, Following the hearings within New York, families may encounter appeals at the Office of State Review and then state or federal court. Some of the states have two-tier administrative review, and New York is one of them. So that means your first step, if you were to file for a hearing, would be an impartial due process hearing. And your second step in an appeal would be to the Office of State Review, which is another administrative um, case. And then following that, were there to be a third appe- a third level appeal, it would go into state or district court. Um, other states, like for example, our neighboring New Jersey, um, they just have a one state one tier administrative review. So following um, a filing there, then there there would just be the filing into state or district court. Wow, <laughs> that's a lot of work. It's it's a process, and you know what's interesting and and sometimes frustrating is that. Um, you know, this this was designed to help um, to help families resolve issues with school districts to to figure out what would be appropriate for a child. However, 
sometimes the litigation spans so many years that the child, you know, has moved on, has moved out of the district, has changed the program. Um, but when it when it is for um, you know a reimbursement, obviously the the, the debt is, is still out there, so that, you know, that's one positive aspect of it. But um, there are mechanisms within the law to support the student while litigation is going on. For example, um, there's something called stay-put pendency, which means that when, a par- when parents are challenging a student's most recent IEP, the district's most recent recommendations, if the parents did like the ones that had come before that, the student has a right during litigation to stay in his or her last agreed-upon placement. Um, What that last agreed-upon placement is, um, is often clear-cut. It may be a last agreed-upon IEP, it may be a hearing officer's decision, but sometimes there actually may be litigation itself about what that last agreed-upon placement is. But usually that would be something that we would hope would be resolved early on so that the student could actually partake in that last agreed-upon placement. Wow. Well, you know, and that is something that uh, I think is one of those things that parents, especially when they're new to this whole thing, don't quite understand that even though you know we have the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act and the laws are supposed to be adhered to as best of possible, there's still a lot of leeway for states and individual districts to decide how much help they can offer based on, you know, what's available in the population and all that. Um, <clears throat> so I imagine this the whole negotiation process can be overwhelming for parents, and I think that's why having a firm like yours involved in the process definitely helps. Do you have any examples of uh, solutions that you were able to implement in these kinds of situations? Well, I think um, one of the problems that that we see often is um, school districts will try to employ a one-size-fits-all model Mm -hmm. um, based on what they have. Now, obviously, you know, resources are resources, and what's what's available is is what's available. Um, However, the flip side to that is what's appropriate for one child or one student may be woefully inappropriate or insufficient for another. And the, the law requires that the school district provide what's likely to promote meaningful educational progress for each student with an IEP. So if a school district does not have such a program in their or such supports available um, within their um, options in district, they have to look outside of their own in-district programs to be able to provide a, a specific student with, it's called a FAPE, or a free and appropriate public edu- education. And you know, that's something that we, we fought for in many cases, to have a school district um, either look to, there are in New York State, um, there are options. One is placing a child in another school district um, that might be close by. So if school district A doesn't have a a program that's sufficient for children, for example, with dyslexia, but school district B is 20 minutes away and does, that might be an option. Um, another option in New York State are um, there are appro- what they're called are approved non-public schools, or NPS, and these are a list of schools that are um, they're on a state list, and a school district can contract with these schools um, directly to send students there. There also are BOCES programs. Um, which are out of district, which is where um, a school district may send a, a child. Um, and then finally, of course, there are private schools, uh, which if there's nothing available that's appropriate that the district has offered, um, then we would try to get funding for a private school for a child. Um, another problem that we hear from district is that's too expensive, you're draining our resources, and it, it, things like that. And 
you know, obviously a private school often is going to cost more than, you know, a public school. Um, but while cost may be considered, it's only one factor. And, and to be frank, it, it shouldn't be that high up on the list. Um, when an analysis of the services a student requires is actually done, the costs of most of these special education programs are actually quite reasonable in, in any event. Um, another problem or issue that we often see is or a push from school districts is the kind of, you know, just try it, and if you don't like it, we can change it up, or if it's not enough, we can always come back to the table. Right. Um, <laughs> while parents are, are advised to approach their district's recommendations with an open mind, as the, the district should, on the flip side, also approach parents' requests with an open mind, parents shouldn't feel pressured to reduce their child's services without justification or to accept a recommendation that experts familiar with the child advise against. So if the child's private school teachers who'd been working with the child or the child's public school teachers who'd been working with the child or an independent um, psychologist or neurodevelopmental pediatrician or whomever, an independent professional, recommends uh, something quite different from what the district is proposing, um, the parents shouldn't feel compelled to automatically accept it with the idea, oh, okay, if we don't like it, we can go back to the table. One is they may be breaking a pendency. Um, two, the district may not agree um, to go back to the student's former services or the parent's request. And, and also, it always takes time. It takes time to have IEP meetings. It takes time to come to consensus, if consensus can even be reached. Um, so there shouldn't be an automatic um, knee-jerk feel that something has to be accepted just because it's being pushed upon or recommended strongly. Right, right. And of course, districts always uh, schedule IEP meetings for their convenience, and it's not necessarily the parents' convenience either. When you have uh, situations where there's a single mom who has to take time off of work, or both parents are working, or who knows what. And so you're right, uh, getting the time to sit down with the teachers is uh, extremely difficult sometimes, and uh, continuation of prolonged IEPs or prolonged negotiations is a bit, uh, a bit inconvenient. Well, the, the district is charged with scheduling the IEP at a time and a place that's mutually convenient. However, you know, when you get to certain times of year, May, June, uh, a lot of people are having IEPs. There's a lot of testing going on. Yeah. There, you know, there's just a lot of stuff at the end of the year. Um, so it does sometimes become difficult. And, you know, also if, if parents are requested to take off work repeatedly, um, we do almost all of the time advise parents to go to IEP meetings in person, though sometimes phone participation is available, mm -hmm. um, just because being there gives them sort of more <laughs> more of a presence, and often people do feel more comfortable doing it in person. Right. Um, but parents really do have to be firm if, you know, if they can't go on a certain date. They also need to document their follow-up. Um, if a date is changed, we always advise everything to be, you know, just followed up with an email or a fax saying, you know, we'd like to confirm the new date of our IEP meeting. Um, and districts and parents both should work hard to try to make sure that all those meetings are held in a timely manner. Right. And unfortunately, in some states, like here in Michigan, the IEP meeting can take place without the parents' participation at all depending upon, uh, you know, they, they are supposed to require the parents to come to the meeting, but if the parent can't make it, they'll, they have been known to say, well, we'll just do it without you and you can sign it later. That's really, that, that's really an unfortunate circumstance and that happens. Parents are to be treated as full and equal IEP team members, and, and I don't know that parents always know that or realize that or know how to assert that. Um, right. And, but parents should view themselves, no, 
you know, they hear a lot, we're the experts in education, we're the experts in this. And that's true. Um, you know, a parent, even a parent who might be a teacher or might be a psychologist, um, you know, is, is not for that district, but the parent is the expert in their child um, and should have an equal say. Um, that doesn't mean that the school district has to do everything the parent wants, but the parent's needs and requests and concerns all should be considered meaningfully. Mm-hmm. And be a part of the meeting, hopefully. But uh, that's a great idea, at least uh, you know, for phone participation, if that is possible, depending. Uh, so I want to move on, though. You, uh, you also handle bullying issues, too, with your firm, which can become you know, very traumatic for special needs children and their families. Can you give us some examples of how you work with the schools and families in this area and the types of issues that occur? So bullying is actually an interesting issue um, in New York right now. I mean, personally, I think bullying is something that can be very traumatic for anybody, not just special needs students. Right. Um, you know, when I when I was growing up, there was no Facebook, there was no, there were no cell phone chat groups, and you know, now that that life is sort of twenty four seven, that's sort of more unfortunately opportunities for bullying. Um, and you know, I think throughout the news and the internet, we've heard some devastating and tragic stories of bullying in the recent past, and, you know, that truly makes my heart break. Um, Like everything else, bullying issues are very fact-specific, and interestingly, in New York, the issue of bullying wasn't as closely tied to the provision of FAPE in the past as it's sort of become in the recent past few years, um, in certain instances. In a case that concerned actually the 2008-2009 school year and which has been back and forth between administrative due process hearings, the state review officer, that second administrative level, and then Judge Jack Weinstein in the Eastern District of New York, which is um, the federal district court located in Brooklyn, Mm -hmm. um, the court has found that the school district actually must consider bullying in IEP development where there's a legitimate concern that a student who is being bullied may um, have his or her right to receive a special education um, and services interfered with due to the bullying. Um, hmm. An anti-bullying program actually may be required in the student's IEP in such circumstances, and the school district has to make meaningful participation in the IEP development accessible to the student's parents, and that means everything regarding any policies must be clearly explained, etc., we're actually waiting now to see if other district courts chime in and or the circuit court. Um, well, the circuit court will be chiming in. Um, but it's, it's, this was a great, wonderful case um, because obviously bullying is something that can severely affect a child's, um, any child's access to education. But like you said, especially um, a special education student may not be able to receive his or her FAPE, which they are legally um, entitled to, with bullying. Um, another issue with bullying is sometimes with bullying issues come suspension issues. And suspension is a whole other um, can of worms. But parents of special education students should be aware that a suspension triggers procedural issues and due process issues in and of themselves. And within New York, we have um, the New York State Education Law, and then implementing that are the Commissioner of Education's regulations. And should a suspension issue arise, parents um, can look within the Commissioner's regulations and in, in, within Part 201 for information on how to handle all of that. Yeah. 
wow, there's a lot to be uh, there's a lot to consider when that happens. Um, because of the you know the amount of stress and all that, uh, it's funny. You'd think that uh, in certain situations you could just report it to the school and it would be taken care of, but when it has to go into litigation, that opens up even greater stresses for parents. I think that I, I'm actually a new parent, so I think mm-hmm. being a parent is is very <laughs> stressful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> adding in, um, you know, and look, some of our clients have wonderful relationships with their districts, mm-hmm. and obviously they're, they're stressed in, in raising any child, and adding in an IEP into it adds in its own unique set of stresses. Um, but when there's conflict with the district or when the child is has conflict with other students, mm-hmm. Um, obviously that, you know, only compounds the issues that the parents have to deal with. Right, right. So having uh, having uh, help from an office like yours is definitely going to help go further, I think, than uh, if the parent's just trying to face this on their own. We try. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, now, um, what should parents keep in mind as they get ready for the start of each school year, especially this time of year when most school districts want to plan the future IEP and all that sort? Um, you know, so keeping the special education services, um, what should parents do to prepare for these type of uh, meetings? The first thing that parents should keep in mind is that deadlines are deadlines. There, there often is not a lot of flexibility with certain deadlines. And if parent misses a deadline, for example, in New York, transportation requests are due by April 1st. Ah. Um, services from a district of location are then due in June. Um, before parents who, parents who intend to be um, suing for private school tuition reimbursement at least 10 business days prior to removing um, their child and placing them in the private school, even if it's a private school the child previously attended, it has to be done annually, has, um, these parents have to provide a notice of intention to, um, to, to sue their district, to look to their district for tuition. Um, and in terms of, I had talked about before, the stay-put pendency, um, if parents intend to access the stay-put pendency, they have to keep in mind that they have to have an active case. So if, for example, a child's services are set to expire June 30th, and then they don't like the program that is, rec- is recommended for July going forward, in New York, the 12-month school year starts in July, it's a little bit <laughs> it's a little bit weird. Do you think of the summer following the school year? Here it actually um, precedes it. But um, the parents who would like to access statehood services have to um, make sure to have an active case in play um, immediately upon, you know, if not before the expiration of their child services. We also, um, you know, I kind of like those Letterman top ten lists, and I, I recently put together um, for clients um, a, a document called It's IEP Season, and I made a top ten list of, of things that clients need to keep in mind as they're preparing for their IEPs. If you'd like, I can um, I can do it briefly, but I can go through that, that list if you think that would be helpful. That would be great, yeah. So... Um, I'll do it backwards. In okay. Um, <laughs> you want a drum so roll behind 10, it? <laughs> <laughs> we'll call. I call it how is she or he doing? Okay. And um, you know, in this manner, I think it's really important at this time of year, as you're doing IEP development and program development, to speak with your child's current teachers and therapists for so that you can get a clear sense of what's going on, what your child's current skills and needs are. Um, evaluations may not be happening, formal evaluations may not be happening every year, but 
there are informal measures of teachers' progress reports and also the teachers just working with your, your child on a daily or almost daily basis, um, I think parents should, be, should not feel afraid to ask questions and request updated reports. Um, and that is especially so if the district has conducted any evaluations. The parents want to have a chance to look at those evaluations in advance of the meeting to see if there's anything, any questions they have, any disagreements they have, um, if they're going to be seeking an independent evaluation um, to look at the, the district's evaluation through the lens of a different evaluation. Mm-hmm. Um, nine, our, our point nine would be to help them help you. Um, and in, in this regard, we urge parents to secure evaluations and assessments from independent professionals who don't work with your child um, they're extremely helpful in advocating for um, services that you, you wish for your child. They're also an excellent touchstone to see, you know, is your child progressing? Is this the right program? Um, what other services or supports are recommended to add into the program? Or are, are we overdoing it? And is it time to consider something less restrictive at this point? Um, my advice here is, and this is a logistical advice, but logistics figure heavily, heavily into this as with yeah. everything. Make sure to reach out to these professionals early enough because IEP season is extremely busy for everyone. And, um, you know, they're observing students and testing students, and you want to make sure that they have time for your child. Um, if copies of evaluations are, um, you know, if, if you get a private evaluation, you want to make sure that you have copies available for the IEP team. Mm-hmm. Um, our point eight would be know what you want. Um, and we always tell parents, you know, sometimes people say, oh, should I keep it a surprise? And should I, you know, I'll just file for a G process and they won't know what hit them. But you really are charged with asking the school district for what you want. One, because, you know, if you don't ask, you, you're likely not going to get it. And, and two, you know, they have to be aware of what you're seeking in order to consider it. Um, And in this regard, parents should really educate themselves on available options so that they can best advocate for their child. Um, Right. Our number seven point would be be organized. It's really easy to not be organized when I I work with families that, you know, will call me and say, I have documents from 1999. Can I destroy them at the, you know, and that's kind of a personal preference. Some families are dealing with Medicaid issues, SSI issues, for which they may need documentation going a certain number of years back. That's not really my field. I, of course, save my clients' documents, so I always tell them, well, I have, you know, all of, all of these things. But, um, and then some of my clients have binders organized by year or file boxes organized by year. But um, you really want to, at the IEP meeting, is not the place to be shuffling through papers and trying to find what you're looking for. You really should sit down, make cop- extra copies, actually, of any documents that you want to hand out or any documents you'd like to refer to. Um, parents, we, we recommend, it, and I think this is good practice for any meeting, but it, it, in these meetings it's also easy sometimes to turn emotional, and I always kind of feel that if you have an outline in front of you or if your bullet points of questions you want to ask, points you want to make, then it's easier to stay on track um, especially if if things do become a little bit um, sticky. Um, We tell parents to, as soon as they get their notice of their IEP meeting, open up that date book. Um, Clear the date with anyone you wanted to invite to the meeting. So if you want your child's speech therapist there, 
make sure it's okay with him or her. And if the date doesn't work for someone, contact the school district as soon as possible to discuss rescheduling because, like we talked about before, this time of year is very busy and um, the school district, unfortunately, may not give the parents much time. Um, In New York, they only have to really give five days. Often, though, they will give more. And when they do give less, they, you know, should be amenable to changing it if it doesn't work with the parent, especially if the date was not one that the parent had input in selecting. Another issue is um, to tape record or not, and this is always a really great question. But depending on the circumstances, and, and this is deals a lot with personalities and um, ability to, to listen and et cetera. There's a lot of et cetera's in there. Um, but some parents may wish to tape record their child's meeting. If they do, they need to write to the school district at least two days in advance to note that they will be taping the meeting. Um, theoretically, the school district could have some concerns, but generally it's not an issue as long as it's set up in advance. Um, and the next the next point is, do the, do the parents want a parent member to attend? Um, the parents are entitled to request in New York the attendance of a parent member who is another parent of another child with a disability residing in the school district. Um, the parents can request help from the parent member. Um, this person may be able to help them understand the IEP development process, or it may just be another body in the room. Um, the parents, the parent member's participation used to be something mandatory under New York regulations, but now um, it's some, the parent member attends only with the, upon parent request. And parents who want this extra support there um, must remember to request it in writing at least 72 hours in advance of the meeting so that the district has an opportunity to ensure that a parent member is available um, for the meeting. Hmm. We urge parents, and this is this is often a hard one, but to keep your cool. Um, there are a lot of people in a room talking about your child, and some of these people may know your child. Some of them may not know your child by anything other than paper. Um, and the school district and the parents are, unless you know, unless someone moves, they're in a lot. They're going to be in a long relationship, and ultimately, um, sometimes people can work things out, and sometimes they have to agree to disagree. But everyone should remain professional. Um, our next point is, if you're not sure, don't sign. And we tell parents, you know, often there's the concern, if I don't sign this right now, my child's not going to get any services, or they're going to just take everything away. If you're unclear as to any section of the IEP, you should ask questions. That's the time to have things clarified. And if you're still not sure at the end of the meeting, take a day, look everything over, and then make your decisions. Um, and our number one piece of advice, and, and this is actually just cute, but, but we've seen it work, is that a spoonful of sugar helps. Um, we always tell people, bring a smile, bring some cookies if you feel, so, if you feel inclined. These meetings can be long. Um, everyone, you know, starting it off in a good mood and cheerful and in a friendly manner um, makes a stressful situation. Start off on a, a positive note and just sort of lifts a little bit of the, the stress that some people may feel upon entering into that IEP conference room. So I hope those were helpful. Um, that's our best top ten piece of, pieces of advice for IEP season.
I think those are great, and especially I like the last one there too. You know, because we always try to thank everyone for coming at the end of the meeting, no matter how we feel, just because you know they are trying to do their best too, or at least what they perceive to be their best. But I also like this idea of the parent member. I've never, I don't know if that's allowed in Michigan or not, but that's a that's a really excellent idea because it seems like when you're sitting in an IEP meeting. It can feel, and I know it's supposed to be a team, but the fact of the matter is it often comes to a perception of it's this entire group of people against just us. And so I think having a second person in the meeting or an additional person for support, like a parent member, is a great idea. And if parents are, you know, are working along those lines, if parents are working with an independent evaluator or there's a a therapist who works with the parent, you know, outside of school, it may be those services may be provided by the district or it may be something the parents are privately providing, um, they should feel able to ask the, those individuals to participate. Um, some parents, and, and, you know, this is a decision as well, some parents will bring an attorney to the IEP meeting. Um, their Parents are entitled to bring people to support them, to either make recommendations, to make them, them feel more comfortable. They just have to let the district know in advance. Right. Um, Right. I think that's great. And the other one I really liked is the know what know what you want before the meeting. That was, uh, I have to say, with us, it was uh, uh, probably a couple of years before we finally realized that, uh, oh, hey, th- you know, because at first we didn't know what to expect. And so we're like, oh, any help is great. And now we're realizing, well, not any help is great. Sometimes you really got to get a lot more specific. And so no way, uh, studying IEP manuals that are available online and things like that ahead of time can be a tremendous help. I think that, you know, it's, Parents need to go to the IEP meetings and listen to everything that the district has to say. And the district may offer up a program or supports that the parents hadn't even known were, were available or hadn't considered. But um, the parents also have, you know, should educate themselves about things that they want to bring to the district's attention. And, um, you know, what ultimately may end up on that I, the child's IEP or what the parents ultimately may decide to do may not be what they went in thinking, but... Um, you know, that's the time to ask for it, and that's the time to explore all appropriate options. Mm -hmm. That's great. Now, uh, as long as we're on this subject, from your perspective, what are some of the most common misconceptions that parents have when it comes to special education in their schools and what's available and their rights under the law? And I think, you know, we've been been talking about this throughout some of our um, questions already, but Mm -hmm. I think, unfortunately, sometimes parents don't feel empowered to use their voice because they don't think it's their place. Um, Hmm. They don't see themselves as the quote-unquote educational experts. But, you know, like I said before, parents are experts in a sense on this team. They're the the one and only experts um, of their child. Mm -hmm. They are supposed to be full and equal IEP team members. That doesn't mean that the district has to, you know, accede to every every wish of the parent that the parents vocalize. But they should feel free to um, raise any concerns, make any requests, um, make any recommendations. You know, there an IEP has a lot of parts. The first are the present levels of performance, or the maps, um, as they're sometimes called, and that's you know just. Briefly, that's, you know, a list of skills and um, needs and, uh, you know, the parents see the children in a lot of different settings that school district folks might not see them. And in terms of goals, again, there may be things that the parents 
see at home that's different than than what's done in school, and, and there's ample opportunity for input. And you know, especially in the program recommendations, um, parents need to like we were just talking about. Parents need to raise options that um, you know they think would be appropriate for their son or daughter. Um, another concern is that sometimes parents think, oh, you know, great, we worked it out one year, then, you know, we're done. We don't have we don't have to worry about this anymore. Um, and, you know, my son or daughter will be set until they graduate. And what they need to remember is that the law requires that the school district develop an IEP on an at least annual basis. So, like it or not, this is something that the parents are going to have to deal with every single year. Right. It doesn't mean they're going to do process every year. But I always like to, you know, the best defense is an offense, right? So you want to prepare and have have your reports ready, have your outline ready, have your requests ready, um, because some years it will go smoothly, but then sometimes programs change, personnel change, budgets change, and everything can be thrown for a loop if you're not prepared. Um, I think also another issue that crops up is and part of this is because the law doesn't really define what a FAPE is. Um, the school district is charged with preparing a program that is likely to promote progress, meaningful progress, and access to educational opportunity. It's not an exact quote, but it's kind of a good gist. Um, but it doesn't say, you know, X number of sessions per week of speech therapy for a child with classified as having a speech and language impairment or, you know, whatever. It doesn't define things like that, and, and it shouldn't because obviously each child is an individual, but it's a fine line between a program designed to be appropriate and a program that might be something more than appropriate, might be the best. Obviously, you know, as parents, we all want what's best for our child as a school district. Um, obviously, money is a concern, and the school district is not required to provide what's best. Um, parents can always supplement on their own if they want. Um, I think the case law says something like to the effect of school districts are not required every to provide everything thought desirable by well-intentioned and loving parents. Um, so, you know, I think that that definition of what's in a FAPE really depends on the student and, um, you know, if, if litigation is involved when we get down to brass tacks, it becomes making the, the case for the hearing officer or, um, you know, any other litigation. So that's... Um, it's, that's a difficult concept that threads throughout the, this whole thing, but um, you know that may be a place where a negotiation comes into some negotiation comes into play. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and of course you also have to keep in mind that uh, students progress at uh, varying rates, and so sometimes um, what was in the IEP to cover on a specific uh, uh, subject uh, may not may need uh, to either be. Uh, increased or decreased from year to year too. Absolutely, and that's and that's why the IEP should be developed on an at least annual basis, um, which is what the law requires. Um, because students are growing and changing, and I've had many students who their classifications have changed. They've gone into less restrictive environments. Um, you know, their programs have changed vastly from what they had when they were little children to, you know, I've, I've worked with some students for many years through middle, you know, when they're in middle school, the program that was appropriate for kindergarten or pre-K is no longer appropriate. And then we have some students who, you know, just will continue to need a very intensive program. Um, we have some students who 
participate in one-to-one educational programs throughout the day and then after school as well, um, and sometimes on weekends as well. And um, their goals change, but the, the type of programming that they need um, remains constant often for many years. Right, right. Um, now, on the opposite side of that question, what are some of the biggest challenges that schools just don't seem to understand when it comes to special education laws and uh, how they're going to be implemented for the students and how they actually Im- impact the families as well? Okay. So first what I'll say is that there are many school districts out there that are helpful, cooperative, and really looking out for the children's best interests in terms of the provision of a FAPE. Um, So I'm not trying to indict all school (laughs) districts, but through the years, um, you know, of course, doing this, I I come in when there's problems. So I've seen a number of problems. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one of the largest problems is that, unfortunately, school districts sometimes get tied up with their own policies, um, some of which make sense and some of which are clear examples of predetermination of a child's program. So a school, you know, like we urge parents to go to a meeting with an open mind to see what options might be available, school districts also are charged with the responsibility of coming to the meeting with an open mind to consider any appropriate option. Um, There's a continuum and... um, you know, they have to consider things that might be appropriate for the child. Um, now, policy may be acceptable, but when it interferes with the CSE or Committee on Special Education or Committee on Preschool Education, as it may be, when it interferes with the CSE's ability to make an offer that truly resents, represents FAPE, then we have a problem. Um, and, you know, sometimes we'll hear, my hands are tied. I'm sorry, it's district policy. And that's not appropriate. Um, right. I think another problem is when school districts provide misinformation or incomplete information to parents um, because this strips parents of their right to participate in the IEP meeting as full and equal team members. Um, They should have, to be full and equal team members, they should have full and equal information concerning available options and concerning steps that need to be be taken. And I think those are some of, you know, the, the larger, more consistent problems that we'll see. What kind of things can parents do when situations like that uh, occur? I mean, obviously, hiring a firm such as yours would be one of the the best methods, but uh, are there any other options as well, or is it strictly from a legal aspect? Well, I think it's really important that parents ask for copies of any documents. So if if a child has been evaluated by the school district, um, it's really important that parents get a copy of that evaluation because... There may be something in there that, you know, either there could, look, typographical errors happen and there could be information about another child. I mean, that's obviously an extreme example that we hope doesn't happen often, Mm -hmm. but there may be something that, you know, a child's therapist or the teacher working with the child disagrees with. I think it's really important that parents ask for copies of their, um, they're, they're supposed to receive a procedural safeguards notice, which explains all of their rights in detail, including their right to go to due process if they ultimately disagree with the district's recommendations. But I think it's important for them to ask for a copy of the rights, and if they don't understand anything in that, to ask questions. It's also, you know, important for them to ask for copies of any documents. Um, the school district, you know, is able to come to the IEP meeting with a draft meet- a draft of the IEP. That is legal as long as they're open to... Um, changes. But, you know, when they put the IEP up on a smart board or they put it up on a screen and there are 15 people in the room and the screen is very small, I think it's important to ask for, you know, can you, oh, you know, can you just print out a copy of that? Because sometimes when you're going through the goals or you're going through the present levels and it's 
you know, 100 degrees in the room and there were 15 people. And, you know, I think it's a lot more helpful to have that piece of paper in front of you. Um, And I I think, you know, that's that's where I say parents should have as much information and clear information. And if they don't understand, they should just keep asking questions. And if, if it's not explained to them in a clear answer, in a clear manner, then they should just, you know, continue. Right. Always ask for clarification. I think that's the the biggest uh, thing that we've learned is uh, as many questions as you have and then ask questions about the questions if you have to. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Now, you're, uh, you offer representation primarily in New York State and in New Jersey. Are parents able to contact you if they're in other states? Or if not, uh, are there any areas that you can recommend for parents to find legal advice and representation in their areas? Sure. Um Anyone can contact us, and I will say that, you know, we've worked on cases in, and matters in other states. There's a mechanism called Pro Hoc Vice Admission, where you are sponsored by an attorney of that state to get admission just for a specific case, and different states have different rules about Pro Hoc and the involvement of um, the sponsoring attorney. Mm-hmm. Christina's actually gone to Alaska to work on a case. I mean, wow. you know, we've had interesting um opportunities. Anyone can always call us and we will always try to help. Um, we can't, I think one thing people, potential um, people who are reaching out to someone that they are potentially looking to hire as an attorney need to know is that in, unless and until they're a client, the attorney really cannot give them specific legal advice. Right. Um, so that's just important for people to, um, to keep in mind. But what, you know, while we we wouldn't be able to offer a specific, you know, legal guidance as to how to run a case to someone who wasn't our client. We can decide if it's a matter that we could help with, out with and it, it's something that would be appropriate for our office or if we should refer them out. We do have contacts in other um, states and jurisdictions. But um, another um, recommendation for um, some place like a, a resource that, that parents could go to is there's an organi- organization called COPA, and they have a website, copaa.org, mm-hmm. and that stands for Council of Parents, Attorneys, and Advocates, and there's a listing by state um, of attorneys working in this area, so parents can put in, you know, whatever, I live in West Virginia, and the list of people in that in that state will pop up, so that that's a great resource. That sounds great, yeah. I think local bar associations also may have, you know, may have options. The problem with that is this is sort of a, a very small and defined area. If you were looking for, for example, a real estate attorney, there might be so many more people and it might be, you know, whereas if you if you called your bar association, I'm not sure that all bar associations are going to have a, a listing of special education attorneys. Right. They may have something, you know, attorneys who deal with issues related to, Medicaid or special needs planning or education, and, you know, we all sort of might be lumped into one group, um, if that even exists. Right. So, um, but a more specialized organization, like, or there are some legal services organizations also, which a lot of legal services organizations, um, people, there may be a a sort of low-income threshold for them to actually help the families, but we get a number of calls um, where someone has already called, um, legal services organizations, and they've been referred to us in, in those manners. So in New York, uh, good organizations may be um, the, the Legal Aid Society, Advocates for Children, New York Lawyers for the Public Interest, New York Lawyers Assistance Group. Um, those types of organizations are 
you know, helpful for students with special needs. I'm probably forgetting a few, but I apologize to those That's organizations. Okay. Yeah. Now, um, would state bar attorney, would state attorney bar associations be a good resource? I was just thinking instead of a local, perhaps going by state, because especially if you're in a, if you're in a very ruralized area of uh, any particular state, there may not be uh, any nearby you, but perhaps elsewhere in your state, there might be someone to contact. If there, um, I would always. You know, refer people first to COBA because those are people, you know, who these are special education attorneys. It's it's right. only people who represent parents. There also are advocates um, in that organization. So I would go there first. The Bar Association may be helpful. They may have, like, I know in New York, a lot of the Bar Associations have an, an education group or a children's rights group. And, you know, if you bounce around amongst a couple of groups, you, you probably will be able to get to someone who does this. Um, unfortunately, some states and some areas do not have, I mean, I'm in New York City and Long Island, so there are a number of people who practice or there's at least a small group of people who practice this, um, you know, where I live in, in some areas of the country, there are not many practitioners. There may be one person who does this. Um, so it's, you know, important to find, it, it may take a couple of steps to find, but in New York, it's, it's not that hard. Well, that's great. And we'll put up links to all of those websites, uh, right on the page for this podcast. So our listeners just go right to that page and you'll find those links there. Any last little bits of uh, advice or uh, is there anything that uh, we didn't get to that you'd like to mention at this point? I mean, I think this is, you know, this is a, this is a really Im- important but emotional um, process for parents. I, there is a, a book called From Emotions to Advocacy, and that's available on the Rights Law website. It's from um, Pete Wright and Pam Wright. And, I, you know, I think that this is something that has to happen every year. A, a child's program has to be developed. Um, and, you know, the, the child's special education program has to be developed. And there has to be, you know, the parents in the school district are kind of married to each other. And it's, it's hard. It's hard to sit in that room and, um, you know, hear people talk about your child and, and either, you know, you don't like the characterization of the performance or the progress or, or you're fighting for services. Um, you know, I don't wish this on any parent. I, I wish that, you know, the school district and the parents get along, and, and often it happens. Um, but I just, you know, I think part of this is, is just, you know, keeping your eye, on, your focus on your child and, you know, understanding that this is a process and keeping your cool, keeping your emotions in check. And, you know, ultimately, hopefully you can come to resolution at IEP. And if not, you know, just understand that you're going to have to agree to disagree. And there, there is a legal process for that. Um, and, you know, I know it's the time of year when everyone's gearing up for the start of the school year. So I do wish my sincerest best wishes to everyone, you know, in IEP development. And hopefully some of what I've said um, you know, renders itself a little bit helpful. Yeah, no, I think it was great. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this. Uh, it's it's uh, wonderful stuff. Oh, my pleasure. It was it was really nice to talk to you as well. My guest was Randy Rothberg, an attorney partner in the law firm of TVH and Rothberg, based in New York City. As I mentioned, all the links we talked about in this podcast are posted on the page of this episode of Special Parents Confidential. And as always, a reminder that if you like this episode of Special Parents Confidential or any episode we've done. Please share our site with your friends, family, and all your connections on social media. You can do this easily with the social media buttons on our website. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, add us on Google+, 
or any of the other sites like Tumblr, LinkedIn, Pinterest, StumbleUpon, Reddit, and others. You can also sign up for our email service and have new posts and podcast episodes delivered right to your inbox the moment they're available online. Just add your email address to the form we have on the right side of our website, and we never share email addresses with anyone. We're also on iTunes and Stitcher, and if you have a moment, feel free to write a review about our podcast there. Anything you can do to help spread the word about Special Parents Confidential will help us be able to continue these podcasts. And that's it for this episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Thanks for listening.